Well, we come to the end of this series on politics. I've been thinking about my friend Denny Blake, who's across town, preaching at uh, Disciples of Jesus Ministries. Uh, he always takes a handkerchief up with him. I needed one for this series. The common grace, the common ground, the common good. That's what we've been about these weeks as we've looked at the divisions in our culture and the ways that we're called to build the bridge. This morning, we're talking about the common good. When I think about this past week, as I've been thinking about this past week and the tumultuous um, season that we've been in leading up to the election, whenever there's a season of tumult and uncertainty, uncertainty always reminds me of this story of a lawyer, a young budding lawyer who was somewhere in his middle year in um, law school, and he took a break, and he went and worked with the Sisters of Mercy over in Calcutta, India, and he wanted to get some time with Mother Teresa, who led that, that, that mission, and he asked her for prayer. He said, I want you to pray for me that I would have certainty about my next steps. He was, you know, a, a very intelligent. He was moving towards a career in law, but he wanted to make sure that his, he was positioning himself in a way that was going to be about kingdom work, and he wanted some certainty about his next steps. He said, Mother Teresa, will you pl- pray for me that I would have certainty? And she said, I will not do it. <laughs> I love just picturing this four-foot-tall powerhouse of a woman just saying, no, I'm not going to pray for certainty. She said, I've never had certainty. I will pray that you will trust God. A lot of us look to politics and freight politics with far too much of a sense of security, sense of our own direction, sense of peace, sense of hope. We put on politics that which does not belong on politics. And we want certainty about our choices, our political choices. Well, I want you to think this morning as we enter into what it takes to to work for the common good. I want you to think this morning about that, that story, about trusting God, that there's a much, much bigger picture as we enter into this next week. We need an everlasting to everlasting kingdom of God framework. For seasons of uncertainty. But more than that, we don't just need a place where we can just sort of hang out and feel good apart from things. We need to know how do we enter in, no matter what, how do we enter in to work for the common good? From the Word of God, Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one to him. 
And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy God, bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how do we pursue the common good? How do we do it? How do we proceed, no matter what? How do we work for common, common good? Three moves this morning. First is that politics has a role. It's a limited role, and we need to know the difference between the two. Politics has a role. It's a limited role, and we need the wisdom to know the difference, okay? So, to pursue the common good, first of all, we need to recognize politics does have a role. And that no matter who wins elections, politics has a role. It has a legitimate role. You see, Jesus is being... uh, cast into this middle ground between partisanship. He's being asked, where do you come down? What's your party? And he's had has had a, a trap set for him. Because uh, a denarius it has uh, what uh, I think a, a lot of the Jews believed was something blasphemous on it. It had the, the likeness of Caesar on it. But not only that, the inscription. He said, read the inscription. And the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. Did you know that? It says that on, on the, the denarius. We, we, have, we have these today. You can, you can see one in a museum. And so the question was, do you participate in a blasphemous and corrupt system of government? Do you participate? And to what extent? How do you do that? without being part of something that is less than what we're called to be as, as human beings. And so this is really a tight spot, right? Jesus is in a tight spot, right? Okay, y'all, you haven't seen the, oh, brother, where art thou? We're in a tight spot, all right? So he's in this tight spot, okay? And uh, he has no problem with it. I mean, first of all, he says, bring me a denarius. What's he doing? What's he doing? First of all, a denarius, a coin, is, a head, is, is minted out of Caesar's own wealth. And it was minted just for the purpose uh, of paying a day's wage for the lowest rung. So a day laborer would uh, be paid a denarius. So this represents one 365th of the lowest uh, wage you can earn. So it's, it's not a... It's not a handsome sum, okay? It's not a, it's not a burdensome sum. It's symbolic. It's called a head tax. And the idea is, it's kind of like, who's your daddy? Remember Denzel? Who's your daddy? So once a year, Caesar is saying to the Roman Empire, who's your daddy? And it stirred up this controversy. And there were different, people came down on different sides of, whether or not you should pay this. And in, in paying it, what are you saying? Are you, are you participating in blasphemy? What's, 
This passage has always fascinated me because it's just so genius the way he navigates it. First of all, he says, bring me a denarius. What does that do? Well, here, here is the Son of God, and he doesn't have a coin. So it's kind of like, you first. Show your hand first. Ante up first. Literally. Oh, so you have one of these, huh? In your pocket. Amazing. That's pretty good, right? So show me a, bring me a denarius. Okay, so the people who are questioning him, trying to trap him, they have to reveal, well, I guess, well, okay. If we're going to test him in this, I guess we've got to show that we have one that says something. But you see, what Jesus is showing is that there is a role here. It's a limited role. Give Caesar back what's Caesar's. Right? It's his coin. Give it back to him. He wants it. Right? You see the, how thick the irony is here? The Son of God talking about a coin minted by the Son of God who has to tell everybody he's the Son of God uh, on a coin. And here is the Son of God who doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to, uh, he doesn't have to leverage his power to change the world. Do you see the amazing moment this is? Jesus is powerful and influential through his life apart from worldly wealth and power. It's just so clearly contrasting one another and so clearly encouraging to us that Jesus is not a footnote in the Roman Empire history, not a footnote of the history of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar, we only know his name because of Jesus Christ. And so here's this all power, this most powerful man in the world who has this coin, who wants uh, to be shown some deference annually to pay this head tax, who becomes a footnote in the history of this itinerant preacher. And so, so Jesus is saying, look, there's a role here that even, even in this fallen state, even in this imperfect government, government still has a common grace role. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about common grace and how everything belongs to God. Everything is under God's sovereignty. And so even the political system, as corrupt as it can get, God is sovereign over it. He's not responsible for every causation, every twist and turn of it but he is sovereign over the ends to which human history points. And so Jesus is saying, politics has a role. Even flawed politicians have a role. It's kind of like, it's a structural role. You know, I, I think of um, Somalia, right, uh, on the border of, of Kenya. And when I've been there uh, a couple of times, it's come up, hey, you don't want to get too close to Somalia. It's really not really a country. It's more of a bad neighborhood. There's a lack of structure. There's a lack of order. So even as severe and, and ugly as poli politics can get and power can get, Jesus is saying there's a legitimate role. It's kind of like we've got a key set of a, a pegboard with uh, hooks on it for our keys. And so when I walk in the house, the first thing I do is I put my keys on that hook, right? Keys tend not to get lost when I do that, right? When I don't do that, they tend to get lost, right? There's a certain structure, right? that we institutionalize, we create structures to 
help with the order of things. And Jesus is saying, give back to Caesar his coin. He wants it. Give it to him. Part of a common grace order. So politics has a role. But it's a limited role. Don't forget. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But render unto God what is God's. Politics has a role, but it is a limited role. That's where we're going next. Politics has a limited role. This is a first sort of a, a picture of limited government where Jesus is, 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 is proclaiming a philosophy of limited government. That government has a larger framework of the, within the kingdom of God. You see? It's a limited role. Verse 17, render unto God what is God's. See, they put him in this, pi- this tight spot, this partisan bind. What is that partisan bind? What are the parties? Which party are you in, Jesus? Are you in the taxation party? Are you in the revolutionary party? Are you in the, you know, sort of checkout party? So, so let's, let's talk about this. So, so on the one hand, you've got the zealots, right? You know what zealots are. We use that word uh, for all kinds of reasons today. We still use that word. But the zealots were a particular party, a particular religious party. This was a, a, sort of a, 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 a tipping of the hat at theocracy. They were revolutionaries. They wanted to use... Uh, violence. They wanted to use force to bring the kingdom of God in. The zealots. On the other hand, you had the Essenes. And you all have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and Qumran and, and how uh, we discovered those in the 1950s. And, 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 and that was the Essenes. They had checked out. They had, they, they're far from revolutionary. They, they, they went and lived and formed their own community apart from civilization. They had their own area um, in Qumran, in their own, their own village. And they said, look, we, we don't want anything to do with uh, Roman-occupied territory, with civilization. We've got our own deal over here. That's the Essenes. But in between, there are a couple of other parties. You've got the, uh, the Pharisees that were resistant, right? They were resistant. They were just standing against sort of the purists. They were saying, Look, we're going to try not to get any of this on us, right? I mean, it's, you know, gosh, the Roman occupation. Let's not get any of this on us, right? That's, that's the Pharisees. In contrast to the Herodians, who were sort of, you know, Machiavellian in some ways. They're kind of, they kind of worked with things. They kind of, you know, they adjusted. They were, uh, quote, unquote, flexible in their views. They made things work. So you see, they're trying to see each of these has some kind of compromise to it, right? across the spectrum. Where are you, Jesus? Where, who are you voting for, Tim Philston? Oh, well, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. Okay, good night. I mean, that's, that's essentially the spot that Jesus is in. I don't like my choices. And Jesus is saying, look, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. I, uh, I love the fact that that there were these two uh, very prominent, very conservative, socially conservative, very well-known but biblical, uh, pastoral biblical scholars who weighed in on their choice, uh, their political choice, this season. Uh, and uh, some, I, I, I don't have to name them by name. Some of you all will know this, and you can go do your own research. But th- their names don't matter. But the point is, is that these two very prominent, very trusted uh, figures, national figures, thought leaders, both came down in a different place. They came down in a different place as to how they will, will vote. 
you know, that really sums up 2020, doesn't it? I mean, it's just amazing that, that here you have uh, this, this heightened sense of I've got to get this right and I've got to be on the right side of history and I've got to uh, vote for the one who's on God's team and I've got to justify and I'm going to spiritualize my choice and I'm going to make sure I'm going to demonize the other side so that my choice stands out as the right choice and there's no way there's any daylight between my choice and the other choice and that's where we've been. We've been on this merry-go-round. We've been in this wrestling match. And here are these two guys that both Baptists, both very socially conservative, both Reformed Baptists, really giving totally different rationales for, for how they should, you should vote. And, you know, we're asking the wrong question. As I said in the Pulse article, teaser, you know, too often we want to say, I want to vote for the guy who's on God's team. Uh, I, I want to vote. I want to be on, I, I want to have the guy on my team, right, who, so that, that God can be on my team, right? The guy who's on God's team is on my team. And instead, we need to think, you know, it's always a mixed bag. We need to understand why are we doing what we're doing? Why, why are we choosing the way we're choosing? Why are we going the way we're going? Are we on God's team? Not is he on ours? And we get it opposite. We pursue it opposite, especially when it comes to politics. And so I think it's really amazing to see this passage front and center in this past week playing out once again putting us in a place where we have to trust. Look, God, am I just trying to get you on my team and justify my choice and make sure that I'm on the right side of history and be able to project that I am virtuous or am I trusting you? And am I on your team? Is, is, is the, the American experience a footnote in the history of the kingdom of God or is Jesus Christ just a footnote in the American experience? You see, this is the picture that we need painted for us. It's, it's fight or flight a lot of times, right? So, so Jesus is put in this position where he has to weigh in party versus party. Fight, on the one hand, zealot, versus flight, the Essenes on the other side. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to react. I'm going to stand here. I'm going to be in the mix of this. I'm not going to run over here. But I'm not going to just revolt, lead a revolt that, that, that amounts to just some human power. You see, that's the key. Jesus is representing a far greater cause and bigger kingdom. And he's not saying, well, I don't want to get any of this on me, so I'm just going to go out in the desert. I'm going to stay out in the desert. He went 40 days in the desert and came right back in the mix. On the other hand, he's not saying, like, take up a sword and let's, let's bring the kingdom of God in through power and force. No, he's here to win hearts. He came to win over the heart of humanity, to win us back to relationship. Not by force. Doesn't work that way. And so we've been demonizing each other and we've been painting the opposite a party in the worst possible light in our media, in our social media, in our conversations. And we've been projecting ourselves as being on the right team when we're actually just choosing a footnote, a party, a 
footnote to the kingdom of God. When we're invited, N.T. Wright uh, in uh, Jesus and the Victory of God, and big, he, he writes only big books. I mean, just these massive tomes. And in the middle of this, he writes extensively on this passage. And he's, he's showing how what Jesus is saying here is, look, my revolution is so much bigger. It's so much longer. It, 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 goes, it transcends this moment and it goes past even Roman history. People can't, people at that time, can you imagine them trying to think their way around the power of the Roman Empire? I mean, it was everywhere. Can you think beyond the American experience? Can you put this in a larger framework of the revolution that God is bringing season to season in the human heart? Now, it's a limited role, you see. It's a limited role. So our pursuit of the common good does not hinge upon party politics. Our pursuit of the common good is this space between the power and the personal, the power and the private. And so we need to know the difference between the government's role and the church's role. We need to know the difference between where uh, power leaves off and influence takes over. And so this is our final move here is to say, look, we do have bigger fish to fry when it comes to power and influence. Much bigger fish. We're dealing with souls created in the image and nature of God for eternity. Not for, you know, three score years plus ten. We are a part of a bigger kingdom. And so our public influence between the power and the private for the common good is possible in all kinds of seasons. How about some energy and imagination there? How about some dreaming there? How about, how about vesting our hearts and minds and souls and imagination for a kingdom that is not of this world but is part of this world? You see, this is the genius of this passage. We can do this. I want to read to you a quotation uh, that I think paints an image that helps us understand how do we engage in public life, as I've been talking about over these weeks, between the power and the private. How do we do it? And of course, I turn to my, my good friend, C.S. Lewis, for this. Uh, he talks about mere Christianity. If you've never read mere Christianity, I'd, I would highly advise that you take your time, go through it, in the middle of it, he describes what mere Christianity is by using a hallway. And what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm, I'm using his image about the hallway between denominations to talk about how partisan we are in so many different fractured areas of life and how do we enter into the main thing. How do we know what's really a principle and not just our own personal value? How do we know, how can we sort through in public life What's right and what's wrong? What, what is a principled action? What is a principled policy and not just a preferred policy? You see, we often we get caught up in the, the policy level and we get caught up in the party level and we don't know why we hold the position we hold. We can't engage with somebody who vehemently, even maybe potentially violently disagrees with us and to engage and connect with them about what they value in contrast to what we value and sort through it at that level rather than the policy level that threatens everyone. 
We need to be able to do this. We need to be able to have those kinds of conversations about where value is lined up with ageless, timeless, designed principles. You see, values are like the pirate's code, right? Uh, I'm, I'm quoting a lot of movies this morning. I'm sorry about that. It just sort of happened that way. But anyway, the pirate's code, right? The pirate's code is, is you know, even pirates have values, okay? They're not principles. They're values. Even pirates have values, Right? Stick to the code. You remember? Stick to the code. He's, he did not stick to the code. He did something selfless. He did something unselfish. That's not the pirate's code. See, pirates have a code. Pirates have values, but they're not always lined up with principles. And we need to be able to say, look, we have different values. What lines up? And, and to be able to have that kind of conversation is to get out into the hallway. And this is where Jesus is having this conversation. He's having this conversation between parties in the hallway, saying, calling people to a different place, a deeper place, to draw upon deeper wells that these institutions have drawn upon for centuries. You see? Here's a quotation from C.S. Lewis. He's talking about it. He says, look, when you're talking about which room you're going to go in, you know, a, a denomination like Presbyterian or Baptist or Episcopal, those rooms have fires and chairs and furniture, and, and those are places where you, you have come. But, but the hallway connects them all. How do we have a conversation out in the hallway? He says, look, the question should never be, do I like this kind of service over in this room? But are these doctrines true? You see? Are they principles? Or are they just preferences? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to knock on this door due to my pride or mere taste or my personal dislike of this particular doorkeeper? <laughs> when you have reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and to those who are still in the hallway. If they are wrong, they need your prayers all the more. And if, if there are, they are your enemies, then you're under orders to pray for them. That is one of the rules common to the whole house. You see why I chose this quotation? Because what he's talking about in the church and the divisions that we end up in the church, boy, we certainly have to have that right. And when we can get that right, then we, and we can talk to each other about the differences that we share. Then we can engage out in this public space between the power and the private in a way that's winning people over and rather than polarizing them. Now, let me, let me close. I'm going to close very soon, but I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about, and this is risky, okay? I'm taking risk here because I'm going to talk about a particular policy, and we're going to be in different places in this policy. But I want you to, to hear this, not as the policy or me weighing in on a policy, but an example of how to get under the policy to the principles and to be able to talk about these difficult things, even from the pulpit. Some years ago, I heard about a guy named Paul Swope, who had a very difficult, different, different uh, approach to dealing with division between pro-choice and pro-life. And he recognized that the conversation that we were having wasn't a conversation. We're talking past each other. In fact, we're butting heads across the country. There is no conversation happening. There's not even a healthy debate happening. And he realized we're polarizing each other cannot hear because it's 100%, it's all or nothing kind of discussions, all or nothing. And when you have life and death hanging in the balance, you can justify these kinds of all or nothing positions. Now, I am pro-life, and 
I am, I am vehemently so. But Paul, but Paul Swope got my attention because he said, look, if you approach this as all or nothing, then you cannot do anything but talk to people who already agree with you. And he said, there's a way of approaching a woman who is wrestling with whether or not to get an abortion to talk to her and connect with her. And it's not, it's not to show images that are horrific that say, here are the consequences of one choice. It's to say, look, you, you are a vulnerable person and we're talking about another vulnerable person, people. We're talking about two different vulnerable people. And can we talk about this in terms of a third option? Can you choose your life and the life of the child you can. And so he begins to paint this vision for this win-win, both-and future, whereas so often the way that we talk about it forces people into one side or another, all or nothing. You see how powerful it is to be able to talk at the level of values, to say, look, and, and let's just take it to a, a, a dinner table conversation or, a, or a, a hallway conversation, and you're talking to somebody who says, look, Tim Filson, you don't care about vulnerable people who are, have grown up with no resources and something's happened to them and they didn't choose it and maybe they just didn't have the education and all the rest. You don't care about this vulnerable person and now they're, they're subject to this, this uh, cycle of poverty and, and you don't care about how uh, this policy can help end that cycle of poverty. Okay, all right, I understand. You're, you're sticking up for this vulnerable person who happens to be pregnant and didn't want to be. And I'm talking about this vulnerable person who's in the womb. Let's talk about, is there a way of championing the cause of both, you see? And now, now we've taken it from the policy level, from the, the who's going to be in charge of the Supreme Court level, to what do we really care about, and why do you have that position, and can I see any value in my opponent's point of view? Can I see the value? And then can I begin to say, all right, where does that value line up with a principle? And which one does? You see, this is the kind of conversation that we're not having. And this is the kind of conversation that Jesus models brilliantly here. Rather than taking the choices that are given to him, rather than being limited to a party or to a season, Rather than saying it's all or nothing, it's power or influence, he says, look, we can be influential in season and out of season. Whether we're in power or out of power, we can work for the common good when we begin to understand the common grace and common ground. When we can have conversations about what we're for and know how to put it into the English language and not just stand against, then we can begin to have a future where all kinds of people from all across the political spectrum begin to talk to each other again and be able to work for the common good. So, let's render unto Caesar. Let's render unto God. And let's know the difference so that we can take our imagination and life energy in the direction of a world of opportunity between the power and the private. Let's pray together.
Holy God, how we thank you for your goodness to us. That no matter what happens, no matter the twists and turns and the heights and depths of public life, that as ugly as things have gotten in our country, God, you've called us to be a beautiful people who are able to stand for a bigger, a bigger thing than division and party and politics. To enter into them, Lord, to be participants, to be right here in the mix, Lord, but help us have the wisdom to know the difference between the power and the personal, between the value and the principle between what's passing away and what's everlasting. In Jesus' name.